Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Shane Chernoff. And I'm Kaylee Chambers. Florida Governor Rick Scott visited the University of Florida this morning to discuss his newest proposals on education. During the press conference, Governor Scott discussed the $15 million offer that the University of Florida will receive and how he wants it to be used. Reporting on the story is Florida's 89.1's own Ben Bornstein. Florida Governor Rick Scott is hoping that the investment in the University of Florida will spur a top 10 ranking in the future. He visited the campus earlier today to discuss his newest plans on improving education. The governor's plan consisted of a $15 million bonus annually over the next five years going directly to the university. Governor Scott says that this will help the university reach their goal of being a top-tier school. So now the goal is to put the $15 million into the University of Florida uh, in a very measurable way. It'll be $15 million a year on a recurring basis over a five-year period of time. The university uh, will also put up $15 million on the private side. There'll be specific benchmarks, but the plan will be, and we will get there, because this is a great university and it hits its goals, right? (laughs) It will be, at the end of that time frame, we will have a top 10 university. The University of Florida was a particular interest for the governor because it has the best opportunity in becoming a flagship university. University of Florida, the Board of Governors, they care about all these universities, uh, but they know it is a sign- there's a significant opportunity to make the University of Florida a top 10 school, and they're very uh, committed to that. The governor went on to say that it is important to keep the cost of education down as its qualities improve. So it's imperative that our higher education system continue to be the very best value for students looking to pursue their dreams. There are two key factors that make up the value of a higher education degree, affordability and results. Or as a student would say, what's it cost and how much do I get paid when I get finished? Governor Scott's plan on improving education is directly linked to his idea that it will lead to more jobs in Florida. University of Florida President Bernie Matchin believes that the governor is on the right path. And he's working hard to make Florida the best place to live and work in the United States, indeed, and anywhere. He's committed to education And that is a unique combination in today's world where he recognizes the inextricable link between education and economic development that's going to spur our state on. President Matchin's belief is echoed by his faculty as well. Professor John Biro, a past president of the United Faculty of Florida Union, believes the support will surely boost UF into the top 10 universities list. Oh, it could indeed uh, with uh, uh, the kind of state that top 10 public universities elsewhere get. I mean, there's a correlation. The ones that get better support are the ones that uh, uh, get into the top 10. Byro says the faculty has been very loyal to the university, even through the budget cuts made in the past few years, and Governor Scott's investment is almost like a reward for them. Uh, in spite of the uh, budget cuts and the lagging salaries, uh, they're loyal to the institution, and there's something that could be built on this sufficient support. Indeed, U.S. could achieve that. Byro believes that if the patterns continue for tuition costs and budget cuts, then the governor's goal of a top-tier school might be out of reach. However, the governor and the University of Florida hope that this investment in education will be beneficial to both parties and that their mission will be a success. For 89.1's WUFTFM, I'm Ben Bornstein in Gainesville. Officials are trying to identify a man who was killed Saturday in a traffic collision. Florida Highway Patrol Sergeant Tracy Hissler Pace says the incident that took place in front of the that says that the incident took place in front of the entrance to Steeplechase Plaza. 
According to the investigator, um, traffic was traveling on the roadway. They had a green light. Uh, the pedestrian, according to the information we have, was looking down at something in his hands, possibly a DVD player, um, and walked out in front of traffic. The first vehicle possibly grazed him or startled him. Uh, he fell, and unfortunately, the second vehicle was unable to avoid him and struck the gentleman. The Florida Highway Patrol is now asking for any information that would lead to the identity of the man. Drivers in northern Florida can feel at ease after recent reports from the Florida Highway Patrol that roadways are clear following this weekend's controlled burns. Public Affairs Office... Officer Tracy Pace offered some safety tips in if visibility were to decrease because of the smoke. Well, we've been monitoring the area and will continue to do so. Um, if, a, if a motorist encounters any type of smoke, obviously you want to reduce your speed. I would turn your headlights on. Uh, make sure you have plenty of distance from the vehicle in front of you in case someone has to stop quickly. Everybody's able to maintain control of their vehicle. And living in Florida, whether it's weather or smoke-related, we always know that we just have to take due care when we're on our roadway and be um, observant of all types of different conditions that can occur. In Gainesville, residents experienced some smoke yesterday as a result of an 80-acre pasture burn in the Island Grove area. Wildfire mitigation specialist Ludie Bond says there are a lot of factors taken into consideration before a burn is allowed. When we look at the area where they are requesting an authorization, not only do we take the weather factors into consideration, but what is the location of that burn? Are there critical areas, um, sensitive areas that could be affected, whether that's neighborhoods, whether it's hospitals, whether it's uh, schools? Uh, then we look at, at roadways, major interstates, um, county roads, anywhere where there's a lot of heavy, <clears throat> excuse me, heavy traffic going through. Uh, and all that is taken into consideration. Though no smoke was in the area as of last night, the Florida Highway Patrol has continued to safeguard the roadways. The Sharps Ferry Bridge is undergoing repairs today. Traffic was blocked from the bridge at 9 a.m. this morning to bring in cranes to work on the supporting structure. The bridge underwent repairs last summer after being damaged in Tropical Storm Debbie. Florida Department of Transportation Public Information Officer Steve Olson says they knew in the summer they would have to close the bridge again. Initially what we had to do is close down the road and, and do some repairs last year just to make sure that it was roadworthy and traffic could get through, and, and it was. And, and so uh, for the time being, you know, people have been using it with uh, the promise that, you know, further construction would come along. Olson adds that taxpayers will not be responsible for the repairs. Our position is, you know, it was a recently completed bridge, and it's still under warranty, and that's something between the design team and the uh, construction team to work out. And it's our position that uh, none of the cost for fixing this bridge should fall upon the taxpayers, that it's something that the construction team will have to absorb itself. The bridge is located on County Road 314 near the Oklahoma River. The closure is expected to last for the next two weeks. Drivers and pedestrians are being asked to detour to State Road 40. Last Friday marked the kickoff of the first ever National Girl Scout Cookie Day. While several, 
Several cities chose to launch cookie sales on Friday. Here in Gainesville, the Girl Scouts are ramping up with pre-orders to kick off full sales starting March 1st. Director of Communications for the local group, Girl Scouts of Gateway Council, Nancy White, says this day is focused on getting the word out. It's just a way to really raise awareness of Girl Scout cookies. The Girl Scout cookie sales is unique in that it's the world's largest girl-led business. They learn how to market themselves. You know, they they might create posters. They're, they talk about ways to reach out to their community around them to, to get the word out about the cookie sales. So it becomes a little mini entrepreneurship program. National Girl Scout Cookie Day focuses on the world's largest girl-led business as a lot more than just a fundraising tool. White says it is also about building business skills. The messages are all pretty much the same, that there's more to Girl Scout cookies than what comes in the box, but it's actually about teaching girls financial literacy and teamwork and goal setting and skills that will last their lifetime. The Girl Scouts have grown into 92 countries and have over 3 million members since it started in 1912. Sales of Girl Scout cookies support programs for girls aged 5 to 17, build skills of goal setting, decision making, money management, people skills, and business ethics. White says lifelong skills are built in the Girl Scouts. It's the kind of thing that I don't think girls realize that it's happening to them until years later. Um, We've had so many people tell us that they got their first taste of sales in the Girl Scout cookie program and that, you know, they're successful salespeople now and they probably wouldn't have even thought they could do that if not for selling cookies. Last year, the Girl Scouts sold over 200 million boxes of cookies. Here in Gainesville, the local Girl Scout troops are a little behind last year, but White hopes our local community will help them catch up. Girl Scouts are asking everyone to buy one more box each to help support the local programs. With spring break on the horizon, sharks may be on the minds of some beachgoers. As Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Lucas Dolingowski reports, the number of attacks may be on the rise, but it shouldn't mean a greater cause for concern in Florida's waters. The University of Florida's International Shark Attack File Report for 2012 was released today, totaling 53 U.S. incidents, which is the highest number since 2000. Director of the Florida Program for Shark Research George Burgess says this increase is mainly due to more people in the water as a result of improved economic situations. Uh, I really think it's it's that. Um, uh, Perhaps the uh, uh, small upswing in the economy that we've seen may have helped a little bit. It seems like uh, there's a little more uh, uh, confidence uh, by consumers, and so perhaps there were... uh, Uh, a little bit more people taking vacations and so forth. As has been the norm for decades, Florida had the most of the unprovoked attacks in the country at 49 percent. Burgess says the majority of these incidents stem from misidentification. Fishes and and sharks looking for a meal there have to be able to react quickly to movements or or splashing. And so presumably the the movements of of, uh, uh, swimmers and especially surfers uh, kicking with their feet and splashing with their hands is misinterpreted as being uh, a fish. And so the animal grabs and, and instead of getting a fish gets an ankle. The United States had just one fatality last year compared to six elsewhere around the world, which Burgess attributes to advanced medical care in the U.S. However, he also says that shark attacks on humans should not be the news. At the same time the sharks have killed seven of us, 
uh, we've killed anywhere from 30 to 70 million sharks um, through fisheries. And shark populations are in great decline around the world. So from a scientific perspective, the real story in sharks is not uh, shark bites man, it's men bite shark. The 53 attacks in 2012 were a significant increase from the 31 recorded in 2011. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Lucas Dolingowski. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission's 2013 Python Challenge ended yesterday. The event has drawn more than 1,500 people from around the country to South Florida to try capturing Burmese pythons threatening the Everglades. By late last week, participants had bagged about 50 snakes. John Davis from member station WGCU in Fort Myers recently joined a hands-on training course for anyone looking to help contain the spread of these invasive snakes. Like little kids, they recover fast. Yeah. <laughs> that big one. That hissing comes from a wild-caught and very defensive Burmese python now being used in a series of hands-on education workshops teaching volunteers how to capture the snakes. Miami-Dade Fire Rescue Captain Jeffrey Fobb helps lead the workshops. We work with uh, FWC, you know, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, on the removal of invasive species. So because of that work, I had experience uh, catching these snakes, and it, and, and it kind of fit uh, because we have uh, procedures and policies. We've been doing it long enough where we understand how to do it safely. We understand animals' behaviors. What began as Burmese python pets escaping or being released in South Florida has now grown into an endemic breeding population in the Everglades. The pythons are prolific breeders, reaching sexual maturity in just two to three years, with the ability to lay more than 100 eggs in a single clutch. It isn't known exactly how many of the large snakes are thriving in the Everglades, but biologists estimate their numbers could be as high as 100,000. While state wildlife officials bring national media attention to the problem with this year's Python Challenge, FOB, who heads the fire department's Venom Response Unit, says getting more residents with hands-on experience with the snakes is crucial. In the long run, it's important that more than one, a small group of people participate because it, this is multi-jurisdictional. It's not geographically isolated to the Everglades. The Everglades is a very large area. It's around 3 million acres or so. So you need a lot of people to cover that ground. The free training program began in 2009 in the Florida Keys and expanded inland in 2010. So far, more than 300 volunteers have completed the training and stand at the ready should they get a call about a python sighting in their area. Nature Conservancy biologist Cheryl Millett runs the trainings with FOB. She says the classes are crucial for teaching proper technique. Oh, sometimes people, they'll approach it, they'll put the, the handle on its head to pin its head, but then hesitate way too long before they put their hand in there so the snake wriggles out and they find that frustrating. Sometimes it's something exciting like that happens. <laughs> Millet is referring to what trainee Laura Jewell did. She's a land stewardship coordinator with Lee County's 2020 program. Jewell began capturing her snake without incident until it began to coil its long, heavy body around her right arm. That's okay. It's not your torso, not your neck. This guy's still feisty. Jewell manages to pry the constrictor off her forearm and guide it into a cloth bag, all the while maintaining a firm grip just behind the snake's head. And you did a great 
Great job. That's the first or the second time we got caught. Before reaching out to try to pin the snake, though, Fob explains getting the python in flight mode and holding onto its tail can be a good technique to tire it out. You can do that by treadmilling, which is basically letting it crawl forward and using your hands to keep it from escaping. The thing is you want to avoid actually grasping them because when you grasp, it really changes the dynamic and the animal's going, hey, what's going on? And it, they'll turn around and they'll defend themselves because they feel there's a need to defend themselves. Before that, they think they're getting away. Fob also says if responding to a python call, it's best to take another person with you. Besides increasing safety, Fob demonstrates another technique in which the second person serves as bait. The arrow on their head, use that as like your little pointer, just come straight up it. Otherwise, he's going to see you and turn around. So if I stand here, she'll focus on me, but if you come straight in behind, like that. Because that's where their blind spot is. The Conservancy of Southwest Florida's Rebecca Wallace says besides learning to capture pythons in the wild, the training will help her organization's work in educating the public about the snake's environmentally harmful impacts. We do have an alien invaders program that we do go out to the schools, so it is an in case that we do end up getting a Burmese python as a resident that we can take him out to these programs. Um, we're also going to end up going out with our science department, so they've been recruiting people to get them certified to go help them and get them out of the wild. Scientists don't know exactly how Burmese pythons are impacting native wildlife. They're opportunistic feeders. More than 25 different native bird species have been found in their stomach contents, along with a broad spectrum of other wildlife, ranging from the small endangered Key Largo wood rat to the partially digested deer found in the belly of a 16-foot python in 2011. Removing only 50 from the wild may not do much, but the Miami Zoo holds an education and awards event Saturday with cash prizes for Python Challenge participants touting the most number of snakes and the largest snakes. Meanwhile, Millet and Fob continue their training sessions. They eventually plan to hand the program over to Florida Fish and Wildlife. Millet says they're enjoying themselves and the unpredictability of the pythons. I'm John Davis in Fort Myers. To report a Burmese python sighting in your area, call the FWC's hotline, 1-888-I've-GOT-1, and that's I've Got in the number one. The Catholic head of church is a position normally reserved for life, but Pope Benedict XVI has announced his resignation today, making him the first pope to resign since 1294. WUFT-FM's Eric Ugardachia joins us with a look at how some locals receive the news and what it means for the Catholic community. Surprising news today after the Vatican announced that Pope Benedict XVI is resigning due to bad health and will finish his term once the month of February is over. Daniel Conaglero is a parishioner at St. Augustine Catholic Church in Gainesville and says the announcement caught him very much off guard. I was shocked. Um, I was not expecting it. Uh, I don't think anyone in the in the American church or even the worldwide church was expecting it. Conaglero mentions that the Pope impacts a great number of people, but this papal change is unique because of its nature and it's something Catholics haven't seen for quite some time. For the resignation, it's important because uh, it's unprecedented really in modern history. Um, and so like, you know, our generation and certainly several generations have never lived through this, having a, a Pope actually resign uh, and another Pope uh, take over, but it's really, it's just important for Catholics because he's our spiritual leader for, you know, for the church. He's, he's our shepherd, and, you know, when you have a, a change in, in the papacy, it's, it's just a major, uh, major component of our lives. Pat Fitzpatrick is another one of St. Augustine's parishioners. He says regardless of how Benedict XVI leaves the position, he will be missed and greatly appreciated for his many accomplishments while serving as Pope. 
He did some really good things. It's significant to me because he did some really good things on the social issues, and um, uh, I wish he had. Uh, 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 I wish he was around to do more of that. Feed the hungry children and all. He he seemed to be good on that. Ryan Irwin attends Mass at St. Augustine, says the emotions experienced all over will be mixed as the Catholic community accepts Benedict XVI's departure as well as anticipates the selection of their new leader. I would say everybody in the Catholic community today are shocked, excited, and going to be very prayerful today and praying for who our next Pope will be. This period is one of mixed emotions for many members of the church as they wish Benedict XVI improved health and look forward to the arrival of their next head of church. Reporting for Florida's 89.1, I'm Eric Ugartechia. Pope Benedict XVI announced today that he will be resigning as Pope. The 85-year-old is the first Pope to resign in almost 600 years. He told the Cardinals that due to his advanced age, his strengths are no longer suited to an adequate exercise of the ministry and that this decision was of great importance for the life of the Church. In addition, the Pope took to Twitter yesterday to share his thoughts, possibly relating to his decision, which read, Quote, we must trust in the mighty power of God's mercy. We are all sinners, but his grace transforms us and makes us new. End quote. University of Florida religion professor David Hackett says this statement may very well be reflective of some of the Pope's thoughts during this time. To listen closely to what God's will is, and as he understands God's, God's will, God is saying to him that, that it is time for him to step down, for somebody else to take on. So he is in, in humility, uh, listening to uh, what God's will is for him and, and for all people. He adds that this statement also reveals that the Pope realized his own human limitations and is accepting of them enough to admit it and to take proper action. Hackett says the fact that a Pope has not resigned in 600 years was a flaw in the church and this decision is definitely a step in the right direction. The fact that for over 600 years um, this has not happened um, is a sign for me of, of, uh, of a certain illness within the Catholic Church, and this is a sign of health. Hackett uses personal examples in order to further illustrate the Pope's situation and why this was the right decision. This is a fairly healthy thing for someone to do, and if you have grandparents who are in their mid-80s and you watch their health, um, it's hard. It's hard to, to keep going at this age. He goes even further to say that, that, it, that if it was to the president of UF in question, people would not want someone that old in charge of something so important. Although it has only been about seven years since Pope Benedict XVI took over, Hackett believes his legacy will be a lasting one. He has continued to carry out the agenda of the uh, previous pope, and uh, he was very much involved in that administration. He's, uh, he's been known as a, a very bright very uh, intellectual, um, very academic pope, and he's, he's, he would like to be known as a teacher. More. When asked if he thinks this re resignation will start a trend and possibly make it easier for a pope in the future to resign, Hackett says yes. I would hope so. I think from, a, from our own human pr perspective, we want people who are in charge to be on top of their powers, and, and we would hope that, that, that would con this would continue to be the case. So I hope it's a, a healthy precedent for the future. He says that there will be fr 
will first be a period of mourning for the congregation and then a formal selection process for a new pope, which will involve a private vote done by the cardinals of the church. New developments are being made in this case, but one thing for certain is that there will be a new pope, the third one in the last 10 years by March of 2013. The potentially explosive trial of former Florida Republican Party chairman Jim Greer fizzled out in a plea bargain Monday morning. Greer pleaded guilty today to theft and money laundering for an alleged plot to steer GOP money to his own company. I spoke with Peter King from CBS Radio News today to talk more about the former chair's fall from grace and what might be next. Well, we've seen uh, political scandals like this in the past, and with a fiasco like this, does it spell the end for Jim Greer in politics? Well, I think definitely so. There's not a whole lot that I think Jim Greer can do from behind prison walls, and that's where he's going. We don't know for how long, and I shouldn't say that's where he's going. It's possible that the judge would give him a short or no prison sentence as part of the plea deal. We really have no idea, and we won't know until March 27th, but that said, you know, uh, Interestingly enough, uh, people like Greer have have a way of resurfacing. I mean, uh, Elliot Spitzer wound up uh, in in trouble uh, up in New York State and wound up uh, as a, as a TV talk show host. These people seem to find their way back into the media or back into the mainstream as consultants and that sort of thing. I'm sure there's going to be a book involved somewhere because Greer has a lot of uh, dirty laundry. He says would have come out during this trial. But uh, I think, you know, among conservative Republicans uh, in Florida who regarded him as Charlie Crist's lapdog, if you will, when uh, Crist was governor and when Greer was uh, head of the Republican Party here, uh, I think it's going to be a tough nut to crack for him to get back into Florida politics, even if he doesn't go to prison. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that dirty laundry because Greer said that he's going to try to take down members of the GOP down with him if he can. I think it's interesting that he would say that, but then again, I really don't think he has that much to lose. Well, I think he's lost everything that he could possibly lose. I mean, he was close to losing his home. Uh, he's in dire and desperate financial straits. I don't think he's got many good friends in the Republican Party. Certainly doesn't have a friend in Charlie Crist anymore, who's now a Democrat and has denied uh, Greer's contention that, that he approved the whole deal that wound up getting him into trouble, that Shell Corporation. Uh, you're right. I, he doesn't have a lot to lose. I don't think he expects that he's ever going to get hired by, by anybody in the Republican Party. Again, certainly not here in Florida. Uh, they tend to look, uh, look at the airing of uh, dirty laundry uh, as uh, something you just don't do and expect to, to live, at least to live on in a political sense. Greer said that uh, he, knew what he, he knew what he was doing, and there was a severance agreement that he said should have protected him from any wrongdoing. Can you just talk a little bit about that? I don't know all the details of that, but he, he, he did wind up uh, uh, suing, I believe, the Republican Party to get the severance that uh, uh, he said that he was due. Um, I don't know how he could believe that that would have protected him. Uh, from his own wrongdoing for the simple case that, uh, you know, he secretly set up a shell corporation, hid away the money. He was a secret partner until his business partner uh, wound up going to the FDLE. So, you know, I'm not sure that anything that he would have gotten from the party would have indemnified him from, from any kind of prosecution. It seems like in, in politics there's always a scandal such as this one, or there's always a scandal at least going on. Uh, do you believe that 
he, uh, Jim Greer was o- the only one that just happened to be caught. Do you believe that there's more uh, dirty work going on? Well, you know, I'm not going to indict the GOP, but uh, let me just say, when, when when there's one person doing this, it usually means that there's been much, much more than one person involved. Other people had to know. Other people were complicit. There were a lot of trips uh, that were uh, supposedly talked about to expensive locations, expensive hotels, uh, limousines, allegedly prostitutes, lots of booze and things like that. And one man does not, one man does not do it all. And, and I think that's the dirty laundry that uh, he was threatening to expose and may still expose uh, whatever his next chapter is uh, in a book. Uh, you know, I could see movie rights on something like this because everybody loves salacious details except for the people who are involved. And that was me speaking with CBS Radio News correspondent Peter King. Florida drivers who have seen gas prices rise steadily this year can expect prices to continue to increase, according to the latest fuel brief, courtesy of AAA. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Tony Sadiku has more on the story. Local drivers at the pump are already expressing their shock and frustration about the recent increase in gas prices. According to AAA spokeswoman Jessica Brady, just in the last two weeks, we have seen gas prices have taken a sharp uptick. We're seeing gas prices jump upwards of 25 cents in the last two weeks, and it looks like gas prices are going to steadily increase throughout April when they're forecast to peak. Uh, While we may not see prices jump 25 cents, you know, in the coming two weeks, we can expect increases. Brady adds other factors such as economic optimism in the global market may be forcing this inflation as well. It does have an impact on both uh, gasoline and crude oil prices because it causes an increase in demand for heating oil. Um, So that does have an impact on what we're paying. That, coupled with economic growth in China and Germany, you know, adds some optimism to the market for an increase in demand as well. And right now is, is the season when we tend to see refineries going into their maintenance period and refineries are switching to the summer blend fuel, which is more costly, which also gets passed on to consumers. Brady says that we should not expect gas prices to exceed $4 a gallon this year for the regular unleaded gasoline. However, there's no telling what the forecast will be for gas prices throughout the month. Well, you know, there really is no definitive number as to what motorists should expect for the month of February because prices really do vary throughout the state. Uh, Right now, Florida's current average is 364, so you're probably going to see prices vary anywhere from 345 all the way up to 380, depending on where you are in the state. Even with the most recent increase, Brady says this is not a completely new trend that we're seeing. It's also the same trending that we saw at the beginning of 2012. We saw prices uh, continue to increase throughout the first quarter peak in April. They started to stabilize after that and then come down during the peak summer months of June and July. Currently, the national price of regular unleaded gasoline averages at $3.58. With Florida's 89.1 WFTFM, this is Tony Sadiku. From a bill to increase teacher pay to a proposal for more charter school funding, education issues will be a big part of the upcoming legislative session in Tallahassee. State Impact Florida reporters Sarah Gonzalez and John O'Connor report on what Floridians can expect in education. A big education issue this session should revolve around tuition costs at state colleges and universities. 
In Florida, there are in-state tuition rates and out-of-state tuition rates, which are about three times more expensive. People who live in Florida are supposed to be charged the in-state rate, but a lot of Florida residents have been charged the out-of-state rate. For example, students who are U.S. citizens born in Florida but whose parents are undocumented, they have always been required to pay higher college tuition. We at State Impact Florida first reported on this back in August. It helped lead to a lawsuit filed by the Southern Poverty Law Center, and a federal judge ruled it was unconstitutional for Florida to charge U.S. citizens more tuition just because their parents are undocumented. So the state now has to change its law. But the Florida Senate is trying to add some restrictions. One Senate bill would require students spend all four years in a Florida high school if they want to get the cheaper tuition. And they'd only qualify for the cheaper tuition if they apply within a year of graduation. Another tuition-related bill would affect U.S. military veterans. People who serve in the military can get money to attend college. But some veterans don't qualify for in-state tuition rates because they've been stationed outside of Florida. So the Senate has filed a bill that would give veterans in-state rates if they attend any Florida college, which should actually help veterans cash in on their education benefits. And teachers may be cashing in a little, too. The governor has proposed a $2,500 pay raise for every full-time teacher. And a state senator has proposed a much bigger pay raise. State Senator Joseph Abruzzo, a Democrat from Palm Beach County, wants to amend the state constitution to make sure that all teachers in Florida are paid at least the national average by 2015. Right now, the national average for teachers is about $56,000. Florida teachers are paid on average $10,000 less than that. In order to amend the state constitution, the legislature would first need to approve the bill. If they do approve the pay raise, then Florida voters would see it on the ballot next November. 60% of state voters need to approve the pay raise for it to take effect. And teachers aren't the only ones who want more money. Charter schools are also asking for a larger share of tax dollars to pay for their facilities, things like building maintenance and rent. But neither the charter schools or the school districts can agree on a fair way to divide up the money. Right now, school districts put every school's facility request on a list based on importance. If one school needs a new roof, that might get bumped to the top before another school that wants a computer lab. But charter schools are never part of the list, except in a handful of school districts. So charter schools are asking for cash, based on the number of students enrolled in their schools. School districts say that's the equivalent to cutting to the front of the line. They won't have to put their request on a list and wait, like the traditional public schools. With State Impact Florida, I'm Sarah Gonzalez in Miami. And I'm John O'Connor in Tampa. Copper can be used for more than you think. The Harn Museum of Art at the University of Florida has opened an exhibit which features the innovative work of Dutch artist Rembrandt and his use of copper to create prints. This exhibit, titled Printmaking in the Age of Rembrandt, includes some of Rembrandt's most highly collectible works of art from the 16th and 17th centuries. These pieces of art have been transported from the Courier Museum of Art in Manchester, New Hampshire, and highlights more than 70 of Rembrandt's prints, as well as other pieces from more than 30 different artists. Dulce Roman, the curator of art at the Harn Museum, says that the techniques used to create these prints from copper plates are beyond impressive. Rembrandt is primarily known today as a painter of really famous works. Um, that people have seen in museums around the world. But he also was a very important printmaker, and his chosen medium was etching, which is much closer to the act of drawing than engraving is, because the artist actually draws with a very sharp needle onto a plate, a copper plate, that has been covered with wax. 
So he draws very gently onto this copper plate and that produces an etching when the uh, wax is removed and then the plate is inked and that's run through a press. His prints were very unique at the time. They were very innovative. More than any other artist of his time, he realized the expressive potential of the etching medium. Roman also hopes that visitors will take advantage of some special tools that are offered to help them look even closer into the artwork. The exhibit will be open until April 28th and admission is free for everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM. I'm Shane Chernoff. And I'm Kaylee Chambers.